than just the biographical facts. They help communicate great truth. That at times it's clear as serve in the events themselves. As we look at these events, sometimes we can begin to visualize and, and, and we understand in a little greater way. And this morning I don't think is any different. Why don't you pray with me before we do anything here? Our King, we thank you for this morning. We praise you. We worship you, our King. And Lord, we bow before you. And we thank you for your word, from your heart, spoken to us, God. Might we hear it this morning, might we see, might we understand a little greater way what it means to walk with you, and appreciate in a greater way that kings over the centuries have risen, but there's only one true king. One conqueror of death, hell, and sin. And it's you we worship. It's you we long to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. From the youngest ages to even adults, we love action heroes. Right? I mean, I grew up Superman. Pretty good stuff. Batman, he's okay. A little lesser than Superman, but he's okay. And... uh, but those are fictitious, but it seemed growing up there was, there was somebody who emerged, it seemed a little more real to me, and it's Chuck Norris. Now there, huh? there's an action hero. Kids, you don't know what Chuck Norris is, you lose. Okay. Um, but we love action heroes. They're great. And uh, they're always trying to right wrongs, and they always seem to rise up to try to protect the innocent. And kids, you're going to like this text. This is about an action hero. An action hero like none other. And so you pay attention especially, and we'll kind of follow along here, but with all action heroes and all action stories, there's common elements. There's a riveting plot. There's villains. There's strategy. There's a crisis. There's a hero. There's twists. Acts of daring. Meaningful character development. And we see all of them in chapter 14. This is a cool story. And it's a true story. This isn't fictitious. This is a true story of a great action hero. Now we're going to see motivations. We're going to appreciate potential for good. We're going to grieve the flaws of some of them for sure. But most important of all, this action story is a goldmine of great truth. Let's read the first 12 verses of chaos in Canaan. Now, before we get there, I think it's helpful to understand the characters, and we're going to expound on them a little bit. There's four kings of the east we're going to look at. One king, got to love this name, Cater-Leomer. He had defeated Sodom, Gomorrah in a battle we're going to read about. And he leads the four kings of the east. We have these five kings of the west. There are five cities under the control of Cater-Leomer. We have Abram in the account. He's our hero. We have Lot. He's not so much a hero. (laughs) He's a loser at this point. Melchizedek. Here's a king who comes out of nowhere. That's kind of cool. Just shows up. Then we have the king of Sodom, and who's king of Sodom, who's really the only king who actually speaks in here outside of Melchizedek. And so those are the characters, and so let's follow along. 
chapter 14, verse 1. And it came about in the days of Amphraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasser, Kedarlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goam. Okay, kids right there, and anybody, verse 1, put bad guys. Okay, they're the bad guys in this story. Verse 2, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shaber, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela. This is the coalition of five kings. Okay, we're going to run into this. You might want to put coalition of five. Verse 3, all these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea, right around the Salt Sea here, or the Dead Sea. Verse 4, 12 years they had served Cato-Laomer, but the 13th year they rebelled. And in the 14th year, Cato-Laomer of the kings, these are the bad guys, that were with him, came and defeated the Rephaim and the Asherah Cornim, and Azuzim and Ham, and Emam and Sheva Kirruthim, and the Horites and their Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to end these, they, in verse 7, it's the bad guys still. Then they turned back and came to end Mishphat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazan Tamar. And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admon, and the king of Zoboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, came out, and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim. Okay, verse 8 is talking about that coalition of five in verse 2. So we track it well. And they come out in the valley of Sidim against Cato-Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goam, and Amphrael, king of Shinir, and Arioch, king of Elysia. These are the bad guys. Four kings against five. Verse 10. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Verse 11, then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and supply and departed. And they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and the possessions departed, for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he's living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Ishka, and the brother of Aner, and those who were allies with Abram. Okay, there's a lot going on here. Now we don't know how much time has passed between Abram's separation from Lot in the events described right here. We're not sure. It could be months, could be years. But it was enough time for Abram's company of servants to grow to about 318. And these servants, were told, were born into his household. Not necessarily direct descendants, but the word born has also the idea of not purchased. In other words, they were volunteers. They weren't subservient. They weren't forced. They were volunteers. They wanted to be a part of this company. Now, understanding something, back in the days before there were strong national governments like we have now, people sought safety in numbers, which is understandable. Some became citizens of a city. Others asked to live under the protection of influential men. In this case, some asked to align themselves with Abram. They'd offer their personal service in exchange for the benefits of the community. They were not slavishly bound to Abram. They participated in a business arrangement, really. Provision, protection, and exchange for loyalty. And here's why the distinction's important. Abram attracted a large number of loyal followers because he was influential, because he was wealthy in some parts, and people found security. Abram's household grew because people saw how his community enjoyed provision and protection, and they willingly became part of Abram's community. Many came asking to be part of his household. On the other side, 
There are also other powerful men, rulers of cities, and usually they grew more powerful not because people wanted to become a part of them, but they came through conquest. They would raid their neighbors, they'd take their possessions, and they killed anyone who didn't serve their purposes. These free citizens of their cities, they paid taxes, high taxes, and they would join these kings in warfare. And if they didn't, they'd become slaves themselves. But far from being a slave owner, Abram put his own life on the line to battle what the Old and the New Testament called men-stealers, or kings who raided other cities and took them captives for their slaves. Now, as we continue to look at the story, we need to remember Abraham lived peacefully in the countryside, whereas this coalition of kings came from the east. We're going to look at a map here in a little bit. It'll help you. Led by Cato Aramur, they formed a single army and began raiding Canaan. Again, these are the bad guys. For a dozen years, these cities of Canaan had served Cadolaomer as what is called vassal cities. In other words, they paid heavy taxes to Cadolaomer in exchange for protection. According to this arrangement, he guaranteed their safety from any potential attacks. He was kind of like Cadolaomer, think in terms of the godfather. He was kind of like that. He held people under his thumb charged them exorbitant taxes. If you don't pay them, you're going to be my slave. If you pay them, I'll protect you. That kind of figure he is. And after 12 years, the king of the five cities in the river valley, they'd had enough. Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboam, and Zor, also known as Bala, decided the time had stopped, time had come to stop the extortion. And because they were so close together, I'm sure they got together and said, listen, enough's enough. I think if we band together, we can take this guy. I mean, he's killing us with these taxes. We got no money for our communities. We don't have anything because we're paying it all to this guy, Cater Leomer, to the bad guys. And so they band together because they need to stop this. Cater Leomer used this as an opportunity, however, when he gets wind of it, to teach a lesson that everyone living in Canaan they better not rise up or he's going to take action against them. And he brutally sacked them, as we're going to look at. Now, I think a legitimate question is, why does the Bible have all these details? I mean, why give us all this? It seems sometimes it's just a history book and sometimes we can get lost. There, there's two significant things that emerge here. There's more. But this illustrates what we read about the power of this army of Cadillamer, as we're going to see why it's significant in a little bit. He gathered incredible momentum by the time he comes to the cities in the Jordan River Valley. Secondly, the area conquered by Cadillac and his armies corresponds closely to the land that God had promised Abraham, which now becomes a theological significance because God's promise is involved here. The point being, because no one had defeated Cadillac and his army, his kingdom dominated Abram's turf. As I said, he's kind of like the godfather. He's trying to take over all the turf he can. And he's taken out who's ever in his way. Now, interestingly enough, as we read the account, none of this really seemed to bother Abram. He kind of was minding his own business, kind of letting that take place, and he didn't have a dog in the fight, so to speak. And so he was just minding his own business. 
The land promised God that by God, and I'm sure Abram's mind would eventually be his. He had nothing to sweat about. Regardless of what idol-worshiping king claimed to own it, Abram knew God had promised it. He didn't involve himself in the skirmishes and the politics of self-serving rules until they messed with his family. And isn't that, if I think back to the actual action heroes I grew up watching, they'd usually kind of be that way. They, they mind their own business until someone messed with family. Then they roll up their sleeves, and that's kind of where Abram is. He's minding his business, hears of his relative lot being taken, and he says, it's time to act. And we see our hero step into the picture. Now, if we look at a map, I really want you to see visually and I, and I show this not, if we had lights down a little bit, it might help. Um, <clears throat> I show this not as a history or geography lesson. I really kind of want you to see what took place. And we kind of got green writing and white writing to hopefully help. Now, verse 5, we got these kings who are meeting, meeting from the east. Okay? They're moving from the east. If you look at verse 5, we read, and in the 14th year, Kedoliomer and kings that were with him came and defeated Rephium and Ashtoreth, Karim, Zuzim and Ham, and Emim and Shabbath, Kiriatham. If you look to the right of that blue line, which is water, you see in white writing, that's who he took over. That's what verse 5 is talking about. This, the bad guys came and took over those cities in the white writing to the right of the blue, the, the water there. Verse 6, they moved south. This bad guys moved south, and you see the white writing on the bottom. They took over those cities and those kings. So you see them starting to move south. And they're conquering people. They're just taking people out left and right, ransacking them. Verse 8, they moved north. You see the green cities. That's that coalition of five. And so Kedileomer and his armies, the bad guys, move into the green. And that's that coalition of five. We said enough with the taxes. And they joined together, those five kings, Sodom, Gomorrah, Zebulun, Bela, and Admon, they joined together and said, that's enough. And so they're going to fight Kedileomer and his kings, and so this is where we have a battle take place. And so as we look at this battle, verse 8 and 9, when Kedileomer army attacked Sodom and the neighboring cities, a brief battle ensued. And during the battle, many soldiers from Sodom and Gomorrah escaped into the hills we're told some fell into the pits. Interesting enough, the, the pits are actually right around Bella and Sobium. And so we have this coalition of five who know where these tar pits are. They should have used it to their advantage. They get run into their own tar pits. I'd call that incompetent. <laughs> this is an incompetent group. And they get run into their own tar pits, and those who didn't wound up running into the hills to try to save their life. And so this is an interesting battle. Now, having routed the defenses of Sodom and Gomorrah, these raiding armies of Kedileomer looted the cities, rounded up captives to take them home as slaves. And among the captives, Abraham's nephew Lot, along with Lot's possessions and Lot's whole household. Verse 13, we're told, someone who remembered Lot's connection to Abram ran to tell Abram. Now, Abram's in Hebron. You should see big, dark letters to the left of the Dead Sea, there's Hebron. And so there's a messenger come. We don't know who he is. He's not named. We just know he knew Abram was related to Lot. Goes to Abram and says, your nephew was taken. And our hero, he starts to rise up. Rolls up the sleeves and he says, okay, time to take action. 
Now, we're going to learn a lot from Abram just by the way he acts here. We learn a lot about his character in the battle. Now, remember something about Lot. He chose to live, remember last week, he chose to live near Sodom. It was a wicked city, a careless city. In other words, Lot is put in danger by his own choices. Nobody forced him to go live there. He chose to live there. Why is that important? Well, Abram shouldn't feel any obligation to rescue him. I mean, again, if I'm Abram, I'm thinking, you, you made your own bed, you sleep in it. I mean, you chose to live there. That's your choice. You were careless, Lot. There's your consequences. Why should I endanger myself and my household because you're a careless young man? But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that at all. Abram's very unselfish. Very sacrificial for his nephew Lot. Abram saw the crisis of another person, in this case Lot, and he acted. It was a call to action. He just didn't stand by and watch his neighbor sink and get enslaved. He did something. Verse 14, let's read the rest of the account here. Verse 14. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went and pursued as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and all of, brought his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Then after his return from the defeat of Cadaliomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom and went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be the Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom and said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal, thong, or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Now, back then, they didn't have a police department. <laughs> they didn't have national forces to call. So Abram and his community had to do it themselves. And so a hero arises. And he has trained men. These are competent men, mobilized forged for battle. And so he's got, it's not a lot, 318, but it's what he has. Now if you look at the map again, which was up there, it'll get put up there again. Abram and his men marched more than 100 miles north of Phoenician city up to Dan. You see Dan way at the top of the water there, top of the Sea of Galilee, just north of it. And he pushes Cadaliomer and his forces north. And if that's not enough, he runs them out even farther north of Damascus to Hobah. And I think that's significant for you and I. In other words, we would say he ran them out of town. He didn't just push them a little bit and say, hey, stay away. He said, no, get out and stay out. Okay? That's pretty thorough. Now, we don't know the size of the armies of Kedileomer, but it's probably in the thousands. So you got 318 men, 
In thousands, who would you put money on? Well, God's chosen is where it's a good idea to put your money on. Abram, God's chosen, his 318 men, they rout. They rout this armies who came. Now, remember, they came from the east, routed the white all the way down to the south, up to the green, and they were having a field day running people. And here comes this little, out of, right around Hebron, a little army of 318, and they rout them. They rout them, and they take them out. And to overcome their disadvantage, Abram used cunning and deception. We read in verse 15, He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants defeated them, pursued them as far as Hobah, which I just mentioned. So he divided his forces, attacked this camp of thousands, probably came from different direction, caused confusion and panic, and he routs them. Then he pursues them another 50 miles up into the mountains. He runs them out of town. God raised Abram up. God empowered Abram and his forces, but it wasn't until Abram took action. And why did he take action? Because he saw a need. He saw family in need. There's a lesson in and of itself about the significance of sticking with your family. Verse 16, we don't read anything of, a, of any kind of reunion with Lot. We don't even see Lot saying thank you, which he probably didn't, knowing Lot. But we see a great self-sacrificing man, Abram. And we don't see a whole lot of gratitude. And for those who are heroes, those who are great men and women of God, they don't really need thanks. That's not their motivation. They're doing it for other reasons. Now news of Abram's victory spread. Verse 17 We read about two kings. While accompanying Lot and his family back, Abram and his household coming back, he's met by two kings and they couldn't be more different. We have the king of Sodom. We have this king called Melchizedek who come to meet him. And so these kings come, they greet Abram. This king of Sodom travels north to greet Abram and to escort his citizens home. King of Sodom, or king of, I shouldn't, king of Salem is a whole different type of king. Think Jerusalem when you think Salem. Salem means peace. And this other king, Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. He's a definitely a different king. He's also, we're told, a priest of the Most High God. And he serves as a type of, of Christ, as a king and a priest. And you're going to get some time in your next step to read about that in Hebrews 7 this week to dig a little deeper. But as a type of Christ, he comes. And as a priestly act, he brings bread and wine. And he serves it with a blessing. I love this story about Melchizedek's involvement in this because he comes out of nowhere. No one saw him coming. Matter of fact, the whole battle, you hear about all these kings, but except this guy. He just all of a sudden shows up. And here he is. I love that because I think if I look at this whole account of this story, there certainly is a spiritual parallel. Because there is an enemy who's been ransacking lives all over. Defeating people, taking them captive. But there arose one who arose from the grave and defeated all the forces of hell and the enemy so you and I could have victory. Great parallel with the work of Christ in this story. But as we get back to this particular account, 
Verse 19 through 20, Melchizedek comes. Without taking anything away from Abram's heroics, Melchizedek gave glory to God for the victory. There's no indication Abram and Melchizedek had ever met before. This could have been the very first time they met. We don't know. Abram was not really a citizen of any city. He didn't need any protection from a king. No law demanded that he give any gift to Melchizedek. Yet he did. It was an act of a humble and selfless man. What's kind of cool, as I told you before our series, you and I are going to get to see the growth of the faith of a man. Isn't that really true? Haven't we seen Abram grow? Remember when he failed the test? Last week we saw him start to pass some tests. This week we see him take another step. It's like you and I get a front row to see the, the growth of the faith of Abraham. And I believe that's one of the reasons this account's here. We get to see what a life of a Christian, a follower of God, looks like as they grow in their faith. Now, this is interesting to me because Melchizedek comes and does, he, he blesses God, basically putting in context the victory. Abram, great job. Let's praise God. He's the one who had the victory. Blessed be God. And what did God do? He delivered your enemies into your hand. In other words, Abram, don't think for a moment, Abram wasn't, but he was reminding him, don't think for a moment that this was really you. God delivered them into your hands. It was a good lesson to remember. God is the deliverer here. And so as we look at this blessing, we also see there's another king who stands complete opposite. Melchizedek came bringing gifts in honor to God. Here comes the king of Sodom, of Sodom, and he comes, and it's really interesting what he tries to do. Verse 21, king of Sodom comes to Abraham, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Now, this is interesting. Hey, thanks for bringing the, the, the gang out. And here, why don't you just keep the rest for yourself? Now, to me, if I'm Abram, I'm thinking, what? I just routed all these kings. Who do you think you are? If I want these things, I'll keep them. I don't, I don't need your permission. As a matter of fact, back then, by custom, it was Abram's right to keep all of it anyway. He didn't need Sodom's permission. And Abram's fighting men had just pat, had humiliated this army that had routed the king of Sodom's. And so Abram certainly didn't need this permission. He was no position, king of Sodom, to let Abram keep anything. Interesting, the contrast. Sodom, and Sodom came trying to save face, trying to kind of puff his chest up. It's all right, you can kind of keep it. Yeah, I'll just take my guys home. We're good. You know. and, uh, but this other king comes to give praise to God, not to save face, not to direct it anywhere, but to God. In verse 23, while the wealth he brought back was staggering, Abram, his integrity was far more. Abram wanted to leave no question in anyone's mind. Verse 23, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. Don't miss this. Abram was zealous for God's glory. He didn't want for a moment anyone thinking that he had done this. Now that's a true hero who points to God, the ultimate hero. And I love this account for that reason. Abram could have puffed his chest up. 
could have flexed his muscles, could have said there's a new sheriff in town. He didn't. He pointed up. He said, this is who gets to worship. Matter of fact, don't give me a thing because I don't want anyone to be able to look and take away from the glory that's due God ever. Now that is someone to emulate. To guard God's reputation, uphold integrity, accepting nothing for himself, accept reimbursement for his men's expenses. He's selfless. He didn't care about him, God's glory, and take care of his household. He was generous that way. I think there's several character qualities you and I can pursue out of here. Significant ones. We have a picture of a great hero. So if you want to be a hero, pursue these. Now these are three, there's more. There's one not in here, and it's not so much a character quality as it is a burden of a heart. And that is those who are really heroes in their journey with God are zealous for God's glory. No matter what they do, no matter what they're in, no matter what the situation may bring, no matter how great the crisis may be, if you're going to be someone who's going to walk with God and be influential for the kingdom, you need to be zealous for his glory. That he get glory in everything. That's a hard attitude. It's a deep conviction. It's, it's actually, even if you could say, it's, it's a passion that God would be glorified. And you and I pursue these character qualities of Abram by intentional action. First one's more of an attitude. It's one of genuine unselfishness. Abram saw his, his uh, nephew Lot. He saw the need Lot had. And he reached out at a cost to him. It was a cost of resources, risk, energy, and there's nothing in it for Abram. Abram had nothing to gain here. He was minding his own business. And out of genuine unselfishness, he went to rescue Lot. He shared his resources, his energy, held them with open hands. He was genuinely unselfish in his attitude. Which he then took a step of action. One of self-sacrifice, which is the second character quality to pursue. You see, at the root of love in the Bible is sacrifice. Abram sacrificed. He sacrificed a lot. Things that he probably could have used more of, things that he probably were important to him. Maybe other agenda items. He probably had stuff to do. He had a large household he's trying to take care of. A lot of time he probably needed, and he sacrificed all of that out of an attitude of genuine unselfishness to rescue Lot and his family. Maturing believers possess a willingness to sacrifice their own wants, needs, and comfort for the sake of others. Despite differences, even Lot's failings didn't stop Abram from sacrificing. And as a growing follower of Jesus Christ, despite differences with people, despite failings of people, If you want to model what Abram did, sacrifice for people. Sacrifice for other people. Energy, time, when we sacrifice resources, we do those things, we pursue the qualities of godliness that Abram modeled for us. And third might be a quality we would forget or overlook here, gentleness. 
The reason we'd overlook it is because we don't understand what the word gentleness means. We think of weak, timid, not really strong, but the word gentle in the Bible means strength under control. It's far from timid. It's far from weak. It's a strength of character. It's a fortitude and spirit that's under control. And isn't that what Abram shows here? He didn't react off the cuff, mind his own business. He hears about Lot, and he models gentleness with strength under control. Leaders who pursue godliness, they can hold positions of authority and wield significant influence, but they keep a tight rein on their potential to harm other people. They give others the freedom to make mistakes, and then they turn them into teachable moments. They influence by inspiring others. Parents, supervisors, learn from Abram. Be gentle. Exhibit strength under control. It's called gentleness. While our society is all about force, that's not God's way. God's way is to be one gentle in spirit. Matter of fact, Jesus, the only time he really described himself, he used the word gentle. Strength under control. When we pursue that quality, we pursue godliness, and we pursue a hero, Abram. Let's follow Abram. He is an action hero, but not a fictitious one. He's a real one. And as you and I apply these truths from this account, oh, might God raise up more heroes in here, more godly men and women, who will be genuinely unselfish, who will sacrifice, who will live with a gentleness in their life and become who God wants. Let's model Abram, this hero, for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, I stand amazed more and more as I read your word. The incredible truths contained. It's been my prayer that as we've dug a little bit this morning. That we've mined out some truth. And Lord, as I look at Abram, I I feel so inferior in so many ways in the character qualities he displayed. And I'm certainly glad none of us are left to our own devices to try to somehow conjure up being unselfish or conjure up a sense of gentleness and sacrifice. But we thank you, Holy Spirit of God, that you indwell within us as your children. And that your divine power has given us everything we need to pursue these qualities. So Lord, as we take intentional steps, might you empower them. Might you energize them. So we can live them out in great ways, in impacting ways, for your glory and the furthering of your kingdom. It's your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.